Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard, inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. I wonder if you realize that Jesus was a saving teacher, as well as a Savior who died and rose again. Many people today seem to think of Jesus as saving them only through his death and resurrection. Now, his death and resurrection, of course, are essential to the saving gospel, but that's only part of the gospel. It is, so to speak, a one-legged gospel if you imagine that the death and the resurrection of Jesus comprises the whole gospel. Jesus, you know, preached the gospel. He not only died and rose again, died for the sins of the world and rose again to give us life, but he preached the gospel for three and a half years before he died. I'm sure you remember Paul's famous statement in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. Paul said that it deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Now you notice that Jesus came into the world to do this. And if we ask Jesus himself what he thought his mission was about, we have a very clear answer in Luke 4, verse 43. Jesus said, I came to proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God. That's the reason I was sent. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said that the Son of Man had come to seek and to save what was lost. You remember in the famous Sermon on the Mount, at the conclusion of that great discourse, Jesus said that not everyone who said to him, Lord, Lord, would enter the kingdom of God or be saved, but only those who did the will of his Father. And the will of his Father was expressed in those teachings that Jesus delivered in the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of that sermon, he stated categorically that only those who build their lives on conformity to the teaching of Jesus given in that sermon and elsewhere, of course, in his ministry, only those would qualify for the life of the age to come, the life of the kingdom, or salvation. And so salvation depends upon our intelligent reception and our putting into practice of everything that Jesus taught. It's quite insufficient simply to rely on the fact that Jesus died to forgive us our sins. We must also respond with intelligence and wholehearted obedience to the entirety of Jesus' teaching. Jesus said something else very critical about salvation in Luke chapter 8 and verses 10 through 12. In verse 10 of Luke 8, Jesus said, To you, disciples, it has been granted to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it's in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Jesus then went on to explain the parable of the seed and the soils. He likened his own preaching of the kingdom, his own gospel preaching about the kingdom, he likened that to an idea which is sown in the heart of the potential believer. Jesus went about broadcasting seed, throwing out the idea of the kingdom by way of an invitation to God's kingdom in the future, and only when that message was intelligently received by the believer could the rebirth experience take place. That's why Jesus said, in verse 11 of Luke 8, Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of the kingdom, the word of God. 
Matthew's equivalent passage in Matthew 13:19 calls it the message or gospel or word about the kingdom. When anyone receives that seed message about the kingdom, then Jesus warned in verse 12 of Luke 8 that the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart or mind so that they may not believe it and be saved. The reception of that kingdom message is essential then for salvation. That's the essential seed which must be sown and received willingly into the welcoming heart of the believer. That's what initiates the new birth and the beginning of the journey of faith which leads to immortality in the future kingdom. That's the way Jesus preached salvation. He saw that everything depended upon an intelligent hearing and reception of his gospel message about the kingdom of God. Now, the instructions that Jesus gave in Matthew 5-7, through 7, his Sermon on the Mount, define the conditions necessary for the life of the believer as he prepares to qualify for that kingdom of God when it comes in the future. The disciple is to seek first the kingdom of God, make that his first priority, Matthew 6, verse 33. In addition, he is to pray as a first priority for the coming of the kingdom, thy kingdom come, Matthew 6, verse 10. And it's in that future kingdom that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the faithful of all the ages will be gathered. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Jesus said, in the future kingdom, when you see those famous heroes of faith raised from the sleep of death to take part in the kingdom, when you see that great event happening, you'll know the kingdom of God is here. Matthew 8, verse 11 that's the kingdom for which Jesus said we're to pray. We're praying, in fact, for a reconstitution of the affairs of man on this earth and the substitution of our present evil governments by the revolutionary government of Jesus ruling on the throne of David. The kingdom of God will extend its wonderful benefits to the far corners of our globe. All that's going to happen when Jesus returns. Christianity is, in fact, an invitation to take part in that wonderful government of the world of tomorrow, the world which will be born when Jesus comes back to rule in power and glory. Now, there's a very simple reason why this is not clearly taught in all of our denominations. The problem is that this future hope of the kingdom of God has been altered in popular theology. We customarily hear today that the objective of the Christian faith is to disappear to heaven, to leave the earth, to go to a home beyond the skies, to a place far removed from this planet. But that contradicts the hope of the Bible. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said, they're going to inherit the earth. What a revolution would happen in Christian thinking if we paid attention to the words of a distinguished New Testament scholar, G.R. Beasley Murray, a Baptist theologian who points to the great difficulty we incur when we speak of heaven as the objective of the faith. He wrote this, While the majority of Christendom has been in the habit of thinking of heaven as the place for which the children of God are destined, Jesus makes the startling statement that the meek are going to possess the earth. This accords with the prophetic and apocalyptic traditions almost in their entirety. The kingdom of God, says this scholar, comes from heaven to the earth and the earth will be fitted to be the scene of such rule. End of quotation. Well, of course, the kingdom of God is coming to the earth. 
when Jesus returns to establish it on the earth, the saints are going to rule with Christ on the earth, Revelation 5, verse 10, and they're going to inherit the earth and have it as their possession forever, Matthew 5 and verse 5. What could be clearer than that our destiny is to be in this planet, the earth renewed and purified by the presence of Jesus who will have returned to this earth? That's the location of salvation in the future for the saints of all the ages. The idea of heaven is simply a diversion, and it confuses and befuddles the Christian hope. It's time for us to return to the great land or earth promise given to Abraham. The Christian gospel, you see, was preached to Abraham, Galatians 3, verse 8. And Galatians 3, 19 states that the seed, that's to say Jesus, is the one to whom the promise of the inheritance of the land was made. In fact, Paul states two equally clear facts in Galatians 3.18 and 3.19. In Galatians 3.18, Paul asserts that the inheritance was granted to Abraham by means of a promise. And in the very next verse, he says that the promised inheritance was granted to the seed of Abraham also. That's to say that the promise of the kingdom of God or the land or the world was made firstly to Abraham and then also to Messiah, of course, as the ultimate recipient of the promise. But he then adds in Galatians 3.29 that if we are Christians, we count as the seed of Abraham. Now, do you see what this entails for you as a believer in Christ? The true believer in Christ is also the recipient of the land promise made to Abraham. And so there are three people who are going to receive the land. Firstly, Messiah, along with him, Abraham, and along with him, the children of Abraham, who are indeed the brothers of Jesus Christ, the spiritual brethren of Christ, to Abraham, to Christ, and to the faithful of all the ages, the land promise is granted. That means that you as a Christian, if you've repented and believed in the gospel of the kingdom and have been baptized, and if you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling as you move towards your destiny in the kingdom, if you're doing those things, then you become an heir, a joint heir with Jesus and with Abraham of the land promise based on the covenant made between God and Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Heaven in the Bible is not the destination of the dying, as a leading British New Testament scholar said recently. No, of course not. The land promise, the earth promise, the renewal of the earth, is the destiny which the Bible promises you. It is for that that Christians are striving. They are longing to see the return of Jesus and the reestablishment of peace and sanity and good order across our globe. That was the plan that God had from the very beginning. It's his restoration plan, Operation Kingdom, if you like, which he's in the process of carrying through, using as his chief and principal agent Jesus the Christ, who was born into the world some 2,000 years ago, died for the sins of the world after having preached and announced the kingdom for three and a half years. He then rose from the dead, and was taken subsequently to the right hand of the Father, where he now sits, waiting until his enemies are to be made his footstool, waiting for the initiation of the great age to come, seated indeed at the right hand of the Father, until the time comes for the restoration of all things about which all the prophets spoke, Acts 3 and verse 21. 
I believe this simple Bible teaching will help to unite the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, with the New Testament. If you're in any doubt about that link, check the third chapter of the book of Galatians carefully. In verse 7, Paul says that the Christians, those who are of faith, are the sons of Abraham. In verse 8, Paul noted that the gospel had indeed been preached beforehand to Abraham and that all nations could be blessed by sharing the same faith as Abraham. In verse 14, the blessing of Abraham is destined to come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now that phrase, the blessing of Abraham, is found in only one other passage in Scripture, in Genesis 28, verse 4, where it's defined as being the promised inheritance of the land of Canaan. And that's the promise of the land which comes now to Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham comes to all who have faith in Jesus Christ. That inheritance was promised to Abraham in verse 18, and it was promised to Christ in verse 19. But it's to be given, according to verse 22, to those who believe in Jesus Christ. And the conclusion of Paul's entire argument is found in Galatians 3.29. If you're a Christian, it doesn't matter from what race you come ethnically, if you belong to Christ as a baptized and instructed member of the faith, then you are Abraham's seed, and you become an heir of the promise, that's to say the promise of the land made to Abraham. You are in on Abraham's business, so to speak, and you have the glorious destiny of inheriting the earth and the land when Jesus returns to rule in the kingdom of God for a thousand years first and thereafter forever into the ages of the ages. I've written a book on the kingdom of God, which we'd like to send you for your personal Bible study at home. Also some articles on the connection between Abraham and Jesus and the Christian faith and the covenant made with Abraham. Check our findings carefully in the Bible and join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.